This week on Punch Mountain. Is it so wrong to ask a movie about domestic terrorism to be a little more fun? Say goodbye to your wife because we're watching Olympus Has Fallen. Punch Mountain starts now. and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies, not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. Look, we don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake and I'm joined as always by the one man they didn't count on, Mr. David Otta. David, how are you? Are you going to ask me a serious question? I'm doing great, Mac Blake. Oh, you fuck. Uh, wait, why do we, in your intro, you said we have to say goodbye to our wives. Is that because of the, the plot of the movie or is that because women hate Olympus Has Fallen? No, it's because uh, we lose some wives. We hate some wives. Olympus Has Fallen is a real bros movie, Mac, and we're going to talk about it tonight. Yes, this movie fails the Bechdel test heard, which, you know, is it Bechdel or Bechdel? What if, I, I don't know. I've always said Bechdel. Always. You know how I talk about Bechdel tests. Yeah, you, you'll, you're you a big fan of Fun Home. The book and the play. Or the, the, the graphic novel. You know, anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> Is that the energy of the show? Nothing matters. David, yes, we watched Olympus Has Fallen. Why did we watch this, David? I feel like we kind of talked ourselves into it. There was one episode of this podcast. I do not remember which one. For some reason, Gerard Butler came up. And I was like, man, are we going to have to do those fucking Olympus Has Fallen movies? Do we have to give space for Gerard Butler in the mountain? And you said absolutely. And then I got excited because, David, look, I like good movies, right? And I like good action movies. But here's the secret sauce for Punch Mountain. I also like bad action movies. Now, when I say bad, I mean ones that, you know, are not going to end up on any sort of like AFI list or, you know, the sight and sound poll or, or what have you. But ones that are fun. I don't mean bad as in like terrible. Like I don't like watching things that are a slog. But yeah, Olympus has fallen. R.I.P. Olympus. David, what do you think about this movie? And actually, let's get into it. What do you think about Gerard Butler, the star of, I think he plays the titular uh, Olympus. Uh, That's right. He does play the Olympian. First of all, I I do want to apologize because in that previous conversation about Olympus Has Fallen, I was very enthusiastic. I was like, yeah, but I was enthusiastic because I saw the movie a long time ago. I don't remember much of it. That must be an exciting opportunity to watch it again. Oh, man, Mac. So to answer your question about Gerard Butler... Gerard Butler has always been a non-starter for me. Like, I remember seeing him in 300, and I I thought 300 was a goof. I think you and I saw it opening night, if I'm not mistaken, at the Village. We did indeed, and uh, do you have time for a quick story, a quick remembrance? You bet I do. I think we tried to go see it somewhere else, and it was, like, sold out. And so we had to, like, switch to a different theater, because we're like, oh, I, I uh, we, we got we to gotta check out 300. It's a hot ticket. And during the coming attractions, some dude was talking and we saw it in Alamo Draft House and we're like, oh, I guess uh, hopefully this guy shuts up before the movie. We need not have worried, David, because some dude, I don't know if you remember this, like two rows in front of us, stands up, turns to the person talking and he's like, shut up, you shut the fuck up. You've been talking the whole time. If this movie starts and you're still talking, I'm going to go insane. And it was like, whoa, this guy pre-lost it. But I had to say, I pre-loved it, David. I do remember that. That was a that was a wild night. That was a wild time. 300 was a hot year. Absolutely right. It was a hot ticket that weekend. We got lucky to see it. Uh, I don't know if lucky is the term I want to use. So back to my relationship with Jerry B. 300 was a goof. I dismissed it. I wished him the best of luck in his career. And then his, 
I watched his career more than I watched his movies. Like I saw the roles he was getting, but I had no interest in ever seeing those movies. Like even looking at his IMDb now, I think the only one I've seen since Olympus Has Fallen is Den of Thieves. And I know people love Den of Thieves. I do not care for it. Yeah, I was in the same boat. Gerard Butler came on my radar with 300. And again, I, I remember <laughs> watching that movie with you and just being like, is this movie pro-war? Is it anti-war? I don't know. Is it supposed to be funny? And I, I thought he was good in that movie. He's engaging. And I looked up his IMDb. And I was like, when did I jump ship on Gerard Butler? I saw Rock and Rolla. I saw Law-Abiding Citizen. I saw Machine Gun Preacher and I'm done with him. There's something cheesy about Gerard Butler, and I, I think it has to do with his accents. Because I think it's like fa- infamous for being bad at accents. And specifically, his like American accent's real cheesy. And I think that's why I never had any interest in Olympus Has Fallen, because I was like, oh, Gerard Butler's in it. It's going to be a cheese fest. It's funny you mentioned his accents. He's upsetting to watch sometimes. Like, the way his mouth contorts to try to speak in an American accent, I can't watch it. It's like watching someone with a mouthful of egg salad. But the thing about Gerard Butler, David, is that he has these consistent mid-level action hits. If you look at whose movies actually get released in theaters, Gerard Butler is one of those dudes. So regardless of whether you and I buy him as an action hero, he is one. So in your view, what do you think is Gerard Butler's appeal? Oh boy, in my view, I'll, I'll, I'll preface that by saying I think you're asking the wrong person. I don't see the appeal. I really think his appeal is that he takes the roles that The Rock and Ben Diesel said no to. He represents the 2000s action hero and action movies. And post 9-11, that's a real fallow period. It's a real interesting period for action movies too, because post 9-11, it felt like, it felt like taking pleasure in violence was sort of an insensitive thing to do. So we decided to take action and take peril and either put it in a superhero movie where it could be as crazy as it wants to be, or we have to put it in a movie that is so grounded in reality. Like this movie feels a lot like a docudrama. It's really graphic and it's really brutal. And it feels like that's telling the story of a real life thing that happened. That's kind of how action movies were in the 2000s where it wanted to make the action and the peril real and just have you with this constant sense of dread in your everyday life. So Gerard Butler is kind of the poster child for that where it's a genre in transition. And I think Gerard Butler is kind of the best we could do at that time. You know, I think you might've hit hit upon it in terms of his appeal. I think he does offer a grounded action hero. Maybe one guy, you know, he's not too over the top. He's not like the Fast and Furious movies. He's not like the Rock who's, uh, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm eating Folgers crystals with a spoon. That's how I drink my coffee. I would stop short of saying he's like an everyman, but he's just kind of like a throwback tough guy, you know? But he does seem to occupy the same space that like Seagal or Van Damme occupied back in the day where he's not, you know, he's not working with like James Cameron. He's not headlining like A-list movies, but he's like consistently making, I haven't seen them all, but I I guess they're solid on some aspects, action movies. Yeah, I'm kind of interested to watch more Gerard Butler movies. Maybe not Has Fallen. Uh, I think that movie Plane might be dumb enough to be fun. After watching this movie, I am trying to guess what other people like about him because watching it is a little little confusing. But David, you mentioned it, and I was not prepared for the level of violence in this movie because it seemed kind of cheesy from the outset. And I think part of that cheese maybe was because it came out a couple months before another White House Under Siege movie, White House Down, which seemed to have like a better cast, right? When I say better, I mean had more of the it factor with Channing Tatum and Jamie Foxx. 
And so maybe Olympus Has Fallen had a little bit of cheese by association. That's the thing also too, David, is there were so many oh what realizations while watching his movie. The cast, like who actually was in this movie, was like, oh what, they're in it? The fact that Antoine Fuqua directed it, I did not know that. And especially, yeah, the violence in this movie is uncomfortably brutal at times. It could definitely stand to be a little bit more fun. And I wonder if it was what you, what you just said. The fact that this came after 9-11, there was like pressure on it to be more like, this is what this would be like. But David, you have actually seen this movie before? I have, yeah. I watched it on video. I did not see it in the theaters. This was one of those, I think I was going through a breakup and I was just loading up on movies that had built up a backlog. So I watched it. I forgot it. So yeah, I, I was completely open and ready to watch this again with fresh eyes, with Punch Mountain eyes. Oh boy, oh boy, what I saw with this movie. What exactly did we see? We will get into it. David, before we go any farther, though, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Olympus Has Fallen on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions. So we'll do some quickly provided answers. David, is London Has Fallen a sequel to Olympus Has Fallen? You fucking idiots. Mac, what are the three movies in the Olympus Has Fallen series? Well, there's Olympus Has Fallen and the sequel Olympus Can't Get Up. And of course, the, the third one in the trilogy, Olympus is cold and there are wolves. David, is White House Down related to Olympus Has Fallen? Yes, they're cousins by marriage. Mac, is Olympus Has Fallen on Disney Plus? Yes, David, but it's on a special adults-only section of Disney Plus called Disney Gore. For all you people who love blood and guts, Disney's gotcha. Just as Walt wanted. David, before we watch the story of one man taking out an army of terrorists just to get his old job back, let's catch up with two friends who would take frequent breaks at their old job, seeking out the back to play shuffleboard. We're those friends, David. It's a friendship check-in. David Hotta, how are you? Do you remember that? I'm loving these friendship check-in prompts. Of course I remember that. That was one of the highlights of my 20s was not caring about my job. A bar opened up that had one of those like tabletop shuffleboard games and we would look at each other and nod and then quietly walk out the side door and then we would just come back in like, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes maybe after just some shuffleboard, possibly a drink or two. Because I believe it started off like, okay, let's cut out of work early. Let's leave it like five, then 4.30, then four. Then finally, it just got chunked in the middle of the day where it was like, all right, from 2 to 3.30, we're going to step out. We had we both had appointments at the same time. <laughs> Those appointments were Dr. Feelgood. That was the name of the our shuffleboard pucks. What? That doesn't make any fucking sense. Well, anyway, how are you doing, dude? I'm doing well. My neighbors are trying to kill me, but I'm doing okay. Your neighbors are trying to kill you. Is it a race war? In Colorado, who would have thought? Uh, no, Mac. I, so it's summer, as you know, and it's very, very hot, as you might know, down in Texas. It's also hot up here in Colorado. And our house does not have air conditioning, so we've got an elaborate system of fans. It's very manageable. We do okay with it. But one of those fans is an intake fan set up in my window. And for the past week, my neighbors have just decided to run gas-powered machinery and equipment so it goes right into my window and I have to, like, shut it off. So it's either suffocate from being too hot or suffocate from the exhaust fumes. What equipment are they running? I don't know. There's a lot of welding and soldering going on in their in their garage. They do work at all hours of the night. I can't get a read on these people because they're elderly. They have a lot of stuff in their front yard, a lot of clutter, a lot of signage, but they're just, they're working all hours on some Manhattan project. Oh my goodness. It's a tie into the movie Oppenheimer, I bet. Oh, I wonder. They're also wearing a lot of pink, so maybe there's a tie into that other movie, Tank Girl. You know, David, there's a house in, in my neighborhood that has a flag out front. 
Not an American flag, mind you. Maybe the most American flag, David. It's one of those classic like house divided flags. Mm-hmm. Have we talked about this on the show before? I don't think so, but go ahead. It's not a house divided flag. It's a it's a graphic, David, and it's two different football teams logos. Uh, it's the Washington Commanders on one side and the Dallas Cowboys on the other. It says house divided, and there's like a some sort of a, a crack in the middle of the flag or a versus VS letters or something like that. Now, David, I'm not a complete football dummy. I'm aware of sports rivalries and the Cowboys and the uh, Washington football team and, and their former Native American degrading name that there was a, a rivalry there. Also, the fact they're in the same division, the NFC East. So, And I get what they're saying. They're like, oh, we like two different teams. But I always thought, it's like, you know, it's so stupid. Like, you both like <laughs> such specific things. That it's so it's like, oh, house divided. I mean, look, I, I again, I understand the, the potency of, of sports rivalries, but it's like having a flag out front that's like, house divided. It's like, I like Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye and my <laughs> dumb, stupid wife, who I hate, is more of a fan of Kate Bishop's Hawkeye, <gasps> played by uh, Haley Steinfeld. <gasps> but that, honestly, the Barbie Oppenheimer would make an amazing house divided flag, especially if they were, because the implication there that they're like mad about it. Like, I asked my wife to see Barbie, but she wanted to go see Oppenheimer. This is a Barbie house. In this house, we have fun with Ryan Gosling. In this other house, we get sad with Killian Murphy. But yeah, I'm also doing good. All right, David, it's time to stop this rivalry and start talking about OHF. Olympus has fallen. Mac, go make a three-minute ice cream run. We're going in. Before we get into this thing, just a level set in case people are wholly unfamiliar, or in case they have seen Olympus has fallen, but maybe it's been a minute. Do you mind giving the back of the box description? Of course I can. When the White House, Secret Service Code Olympus, is captured and the president, Aaron Eckhart, is kidnapped by a terrorist mastermind, disgraced former presidential guard, Mike Banning, Gerard Butler, moves to action. As the national security team scrambles to respond, the Secret Service ground team is wiped out, and it's up to Banning to retake the White House, save the president, and avert an even bigger crisis. Directed by Antoine Fuqua, Training Day, and also starring Morgan Freeman, Angela Bassett, Melissa Leo, Ashley Judd, and Rick Yoon. 2013, 119 minutes, directed by Antoine Fuqua, rated R for strong violence and language throughout. Hmm. This is a pretty good back-of-the-box description. My only problem here is just some bad writing. Because it says, when the White House is captured and the president is kidnapped by a terrorist mastermind, disgraced former presidential guard Mike Banning, I was like, oh, shit, he's, (laughs) wait, what? He's a mastermind? But then it says... Mike Banning moves to action. I was like, oh, okay. That's just, that's just bad. That's just bad writing. Uh, do you feel like this is an accurate description of Olympus Has Fallen? The only thing that's not accurate is the strong violence. I feel like it needs to be excessive violence. I really do feel like it needs to warn people accordingly. Whatever you're thinking in terms of violence level, double it. Yes. I mean, we'll get into it, but I'm not going to say mean-spirited because I don't feel like the violence is mean-spirited. It just was, I wonder if they felt the responsibility post 9-11 to make this violence seem realistic and not make it seem inconsequential. But the result, David, is no, thank you. Oh, we, it was a, we were all kind of fucked up after 9-11, I guess. <laughs> anyway, how's this movie start? Mac, this movie starts with some of that feel-good, somber America music. It's a snowy Christmas at Camp David where President Benjamin Asher, played by Aaron Eckhart, and his family are headed to a party, braving a winter storm in the presidential motorcade. The president's security is led by Secret Service agent Mike Banning, played by Gerard Butler, along with totally not the bad guy Agent Forbes, played by totally not always cast as the creep Dylan McDermott. 
A tree falls onto the lead vehicle of the motorcade, sending the limo containing President Asher and First Lady Margaret Asher, played by Ashley Judd, through the railing and hanging halfway off a bridge. Whoa, Ashley Judd is in this? Cool. Sort of. Agent Mike Banning is able to save the president, but not that First Lady. The presidential limo has fallen specifically into the frozen river below, and that's a picture wrap on Ashley Judd. Oh. You know, David, I was totally a Leonardo DiCaprio meme as soon as Dylan McDermott came on the screen. I was like, oh, that's a traitor right there, Dylan McDermott. And I was wondering to myself, I wonder if David also had that thought, that knee-jerk, like, oh, the obvious traitor. Dylan, yes, yes, you did. I mimicked throwing my papers up in the air because the challenge was over. We knew exactly who the villain was. Like, unless he's playing some steen-stealing comedic role, he's going to be the villain of this movie. And when Gerard Butler is assigning, like, the, the roles for the Secret Service team, He's like, uh, you stay here, uh, Forbes, a.k.a. Dylan McDermott. Not Dylan McDermott. The other one. Dermot, no, wait. No, it was Dylan McDermott. Sorry, Dermot Mulrooney. Dylan McDermott looks like a Dylan. Dermot Mulrooney looks like a Dermot. Uh, that doesn't help anymore. Um, <laughs> he's like, you stay here. Uh, uh, try not to hassle the babysitter. And I was like, oh, okay. So now he's a sexual assault risk. <laughs> and they're joking about it. But David, this movie opens, and we see two dudes boxing in the ring. Uh, one of them is Aaron Eckhart and the other is Gerard Butler. I learned right away, he, at this moment that Aaron Eckhart played the president because I, I was very surprised by that. Because David, look at the supporting cast here. Uh, and by supporting, I mean the non-Gerard Butler roles. Aaron Eckhart, Morgan Freeman, who are you voting for for president? It's not Aaron Eckhart. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even like Morgan Freeman was on the ticket. Morgan Freeman plays like the speaker of the house. He's just, man, we lucked into a president. Thanks for kidnapping Aaron Eckhart. Yeah, I was stunned that Aaron Eckhart played the president. But David, they're in the boxing ring, right? And Gerard Butler, he tags the president. And president Benjamin Asher says, like, yeah, I thought you weren't supposed to hit the president. So right away, David, here's what we know about this president. He's, he's fucking tough and he can take a punch, right? Literally and figuratively. We also know that this is the first time they've boxed. Either that or he's used that line every fucking time they practice. But this ring, Mac, this ring is... They've managed to fit a ring inside of a guest bedroom. You know, normal boxing rings are going to be between 16 to 24 feet square. This one has to be eight by eight. This is just like, it's almost a, a bouncy castle that they just shorn the top off of and decided to make into a boxing ring. You know, I did a little research, David, and it turns out there is actually a boxing ring at Camp David. You know what president had it installed? Uh, I'm going to go LBJ. Uh, close, David. It was actually Jimmy Carter. Yeah, he loved uh, boxing, David. Turns out he's a real savage in the ring. Talk about a motherfucker who needed therapy. He, he truly was our rock and roll president. But Mac, you've got Asher and you've got Agent Mike Banning. They're fighting in the ring. And Asher finally says, you know, he remarks about himself. He's like, I'm an old man. Agent Mike Banning is very comforting. He says, you're not an old man, but you fight like one. And there's something about this moment, there's something about this entire sequence, to be perfectly honest with you. Am I the only one seeing the chemistry between these two? Now, David, some might say like, oh, you're just making a, uh, a cheap joke about these two male characters just because they're friends doesn't mean they're in love. David, you're not wrong, okay? The only tangible chemistry in this movie is between President Asher and Mike Banning, Aaron Eckhart, and Gerard Butler. Their chemistry bookends the movie. It almost literally holds it together. It's really wild. But David, in walks Ashley Judd. What? I didn't know she was in this movie. And Ashley Judd, she's playing the first lady. And she wants the president to help her, you know, pick out an outfit, right? And she tosses away a little little line here. The flowers are too much. Good evening, Mr. President. Five minutes, sir. Thanks, Mike. Evening, ma'am. Merry Christmas, Mike. President gets us off our dependence on foreign oil, yet he cannot help a wife choose an earring. David, this kind of like throwaway line is perfect. It's exactly what you want for a fictional movie president. 
like gets us off our dependency on foreign oil. It's like, wait, he did that? Wait, well, hold on, what, what? <laughs> and it's it's perfect line because it casually mentions a pretty good accomplishment. It's like uh, if you have a fictional president and you're like, well, your numbers are down, Bob. I mean, uh, you know, they loved how you saved the economy and revolutionized the National Energy Grid, but uh, just a throwaway description of a major feat and never going back to it. But the other smart thing about this line is it doesn't tell you how he did it, and so you don't know whether he's a dim <laughs> or a, a Republican. The president could have got us off our dependency on foreign oil by just cranking up fracking and like drilling in nature preserves, you know, basically raping our planet. Or he could have got us off a dependency of foreign oil through like, you know, the green energy initiatives, et cetera. And you don't know. So basically he's a, he's a Rorschach test, David. Now I'm starting to wonder if that was overtly in the script and they're like, take it out, make it vague. Like We, we need to play all sides of the street on this one. Yeah. Do you think the president was a Republican or Democrat? My gut says Democrat. I, I think it's, oh boy, this is going to be a bigger discussion than maybe I mean it to mean. I think it's hard in this day and age to play a Republican president in movies and television. I think it's become a pejorative. And I think you can't have a conservative president and have a good guy president. I don't mean for that to come off like a, like a bad thing, but sorry, assholes. I think this is Hollywood's version of a Democratic White House because of the way they have the speaker fold to some terrorist demands later on. <laughs> I don't feel like they're writing that about Republicans. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think they're writing about our, our, our weak liberal stamina, David. But we also meet the rest of the Secret Service team, including Cole Hauser, his agent Roma. And David, uh, this might be Cole Hauser's greatest performance because unlike the two other things I've seen him in, because uh, I, I celebrated the man's entire body of work as long as it's these three movies, Too Fast, Too Furious, and Pitch Black, I did not instantly want to hit Cole Hauser. I did not want to see him, his smarmy face get punched. So I have to say he's doing an amazing job of this movie. This was his best role because I spent most of it going, is that Patrick Wilson? So I was good with it. And then, of course, Dylan McDermott as the obvious traitor, Agent Forbes. What do you think about his casting, David? I wonder if, you know, because we made a joke about very obviously spotting the villain early on because they cast Dylan McDermott. And I'm wondering if the producers knew what they were doing. I'm wondering if they knew, you know, if we cast this guy, everyone's going to know that's what we want. Or if they were oblivious to it. I, I find the casting of Dylan McDermott really fascinating. That is interesting because I, you and I both instantly knew that he was a traitor. Whereas if you cast, like, I don't know, Patrick Wilson in that role. Well, I don't know. Pat, that's interesting because Patrick Wilson's had some phases of his career. I think he would definitely went through a phase where he'd be like, obvious villain. Burr, burr. That was the villain alarm, David. I'm duplicitous for a living. Yeah, exactly. Whereas now as you see Patrick Wilson, you're like, oh, get this man a, a bunch of waffles. Because he's, so, he's so wholesome, David. But Mac, I want to talk about, speaking of, you know, you were talking about Ashley Judd with her nugget of exposition, just dropping it in there. You know, you get a sense of who the president is and what the family dynamic is without really saying much. They do this also with the son, Connor. Uh, he's going to be wearing a, a baseball cap with the White House seal on it. And that's how I knew he was the president's son. But then I wonder if, okay, the movie's doing that as a shorthand so that we don't have to ask questions. We know that that's, that's the president's son. But was that one of his Christmas presents? Like, was he just like, oh boy, now everyone at school knows my dad's the president. Like, what is the appeal with this, with this hat? There's something about that kid wearing that hat and also a lot of haircuts in this movie. And I watched this movie with my feral wife, who, by the way, was way too into the brutal violence. When people were getting mowed down in a minute. She was hooting, which I thought that was, I don't know. They do things different in the wild. But she was pointing out how 90s everyone looked. David, the real reason why this kid was wearing a hat and wearing this like jacket that was like too big for him was so when they do a time jump later, they didn't have to switch actors. 
because they put a oversized hat and some goofy glasses on him. And then to age him up 18 months, they give him more of an adult haircut. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, which is crazy, Dave, because that's a rapid period of growth for, for children. That's, you definitely notice that they got older. So I, I guess it was an okay trick. It didn't, it didn't bother me. But yeah, he looks stupid with the hat on. But David, there's a special bond between Connor and Agent Mike Banning. They're splitting up the assignments, right? They're like, all right, President First Lady are in this car. Uh, I'll ride with Connor in this back car. In the second car of the presidential motorcade, when they leave the house to go to some unnamed billionaire's party, Connor is riding in the bros car with all the Secret Service bros. And he's like, uh, hey, you need to sit back and buckle up, Connor. And Connor's like, what if I don't? And then Banning's like, then O'Neill's going to punch you in the nuts. <laughs> uh, so think about this line. This is stupid. It made me laugh. But just the idea of like them casually threatening to punch him in the nuts. It was kind of honestly a perfect line because it told you like these guys are friends. And the fact that he's like punching the nuts is such like a dumb teenage, like early teen or tween kind of thing to say. So it, it definitely worked. But then they start quizzing Connor on like, all right, Connor, time to earn your keep. How many emergency exits are there in the White House? Right. And they, they quiz him on some other stuff, too. Yeah, it's really just, all right, time to set up your knowledge of things you'll need later in the movie. Because I'll tell you what, let's just play a, a, a clip of them quizzing Connor over his knowledge of the White House. All right, so how many emergency exits in the West Wing? Eight. How many feet from the Oval Office to the Piak elevator? 116. From doors closing in the elevator, how long does it take to get to the Piak? Four minutes. Security cameras, how many of audio? Only the ones in the common areas. Not bad. Kids got it, huh? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to make a Secret Service agent out of you yet. You just need to remember to keep your seatbelt on. That's right. <laughs> this is helpful because we know it's going to come in handy later. But man, that seatbelt on, I'm just expecting the worst with this kid. <laughs> yeah, they are, they are foreshadowing uh, that uh, seatbelts will definitely be needed. But David, the line at the end of that, when Agent Mike Banning says, we're going to make a Secret Service agent out of you yet. That line stuck with me way longer than it should because they have the way that like maybe a, a star high school quarterback would later come back and coach for that same high school team, right? I was like, would that ever happen? Would a president's son or daughter ever come back and be a Secret Service agent? <laughs> Just that thought of like... They probably wouldn't let them do, but why wouldn't they? Is that an interesting movie? I just could I just dwelled on that way longer than I should have. So then do the Secret Service agents protect the Secret Service agent because he's the president's son? Yeah, that's an Airbud movie written all over it. Yeah, like let's say Hunter Biden. The guy's got his own problems. But let's say he was a Secret Service agent during the Trump administration. They probably wouldn't let him do it, right? Because they'd be like, you, you're not going to take a bullet for, for Donald Trump. I, I want to talk more about that, but I don't want to end up on a list. But David, as these cars are cruising along, a branch hits the limousine containing the president, the first lady. It careens off her bridge. It's teetering. It's tottering. Is it going to fall? Uh! And Mike Banning only has time to save the president. And the car, crunch, hits the ground. And the first lady is dead. Ashley Judd dies, David, too soon. Ashley Judd dies. We don't even get to see her credits. <laughs> like she, she beats the cold open. But like... This is what I was talking about with the relatable action or the relatable thrills, I guess, because I'm watching this movie with with the bombshell and we're both like, this is an action movie action. This is like this is something that could happen to us. And I don't want to sit here thinking, man, what if I went over the side of a bridge? Like it's too intense too soon, I think, for this movie. Yes. And is this movie guilty of fridging uh, its female characters? In other words, uh, killing them just to provide motivation for the male characters. Yes. Guilty is charged. 
it was kind of an in, intense scene. It was certainly unexpected. Like I did not feel like a White House under siege movie needed this, but I, I guess basically what do we need to do? We need to have Secret Service agent Mike Banning not be a Secret Service agent anymore because you would think that defending the White House from terrorists would be enough motivation, but no, he, he also had something to prove, I guess. So thank you for your service, Ashley Judd. But Mac, 18 months later and things are not going well for former Secret Service agent Mike Banning. He's pushing pencils at the Treasury Department now and choking down a loveless marriage with his shrill battle axe of a wife, Leah, played by Pitch Black's Roda Mitchell, who makes unreasonable demands like, please pay attention to me when I speak. God, family will just never get it. The worst. While the president attends a strategy meeting that includes Speaker of the House Alan Trumbull, played by Morgan Freeman, Mike Banning grouses over coffee with his old boss, Secret Service Director Lynn Jacobs, played by, oh no, how did you get dragged into this, Angela Bassett? As the Prime Minister of South Korea arrives in Washington, D.C. for a meeting with President Asher, Banning longs for the days of assuming the worst. Thankfully, his weird prayers are answered when a mysterious airplane enters D.C. airspace and murders like a thousand people. It's an action set piece we'll call Murder Plane. David, when we see Mike Banning wake up from his bed and Rodda Mitchell is getting dressed, just out of curiosity, did you also, did you think that was like a one night stand or he had just gotten a sex worker by any chance? I thought he was waking up from a bender. I thought he was hung over, did not, was not going to recognize who he was waking up with. No, that's his wife of many years. There's something about the way he got out of bed where it just seemed like he had this asshole mentality of like, what are you still doing here? Money's on the dresser or something like that. But no, it's his wife, Rhonda Mitchell. And I was like, oh, when I saw her on the screen, I was like, where is she from? David Pitch Black. Cole Hauser, Rhonda Mitchell, it's a Pitch Black reunion. We're just missing uh, Riddick himself, Vin. Oh, man, what if Riddick could save the White House? Are you kidding me? I bet Riddick would save the White House. Also, Keith David. But we're seeing this couple. We're seeing Leah and we're seeing Agent Mike Banning, and they're struggling through their life. It's 18 months after the accident. Uh, we learn later that Banning has been transferred to another position. But this morning interaction between Mike and Leah, he's watching TV. He's paying attention to like tensions in Korea between the North and the South. And Rada Mitchell's just trying to talk about her day and her friends. Mac, I think there were problems in this marriage before Camp David. You know, they're having trouble communicating, and his solution to their communication problems is to go to a movie. I'm not quite I'm not so sure they're working, Mac. Yeah, because apparently he blew off a barbecue. They never said what he was doing instead of going to a barbecue. I guess he slept through it? That doesn't seem, I don't know. Well, it doesn't seem like their troubles are related to the accident. Like, you know, I think the movie wants to shorthand that Mike Banning is going through some trauma, some PTSD or something like that. But like, there's no indication of it. I would rather he wake up hungover. I would rather he be struggling with something. But just now he's just a dick to his wife and he probably always was. Yeah, there's no scene where she's like, hey, are you still thinking about it? He's like, I don't want to talk about it. There's none of that. It just seemed like, oh, these people got married too soon or something. But this entire time, David, I'll, I'll be honest with you. My main goal in paying attention to these scenes was to try to nail down Gerard Butler's accent. Because when you first hear it, you're like, okay, his, his American accent, it just, is it bad? Is it awful? And we could play a little bit of it here. This is where he's watching the TV and not listening to her. You're not listening to me. Yeah, I was listening. You were talking about Patty's boyfriend and no. she's... Paula and Paula's boyfriend. You've met Paula. David, what do you think about Gerard Butler's? I'm not going to say his American accent because I think he's going for something beyond just a believable American accent. What do you think about Gerard Butler's action hero accent? That kind of swagger accent, it fits. It You know, to go back to what you were saying at the top of the show where Gerard Butler 
might not be the most polished action hero, but he does play off as more of an everyman. And I think that's one of those things. And by that, I mean, like, he's not particularly witty. He's not particularly charming, much like any normal person would be. To watch him talk, it kind of, it works out that he's a man of few words. He's not really, you know, saying a lot of kill lines or anything like that. He's, there's almost a utilitarian quality to his dialogue in this movie. It's funny you should say utilitarian, David. I think we're a little too in sync right now. Our menstrual cycles are must be in sync. (laughs) Because I felt the way about his voice the same way I felt about like Christian Bale's Batman voice, which Christian Bale doing the Batman voice, it was utilitarian, right? It made sense because he was trying to show a difference between Bruce Wayne and Batman. And he's like, well, to help disguise the Bruce Wayne identity, when Christian Bale played Batman, he gave him this Batman voice. And even though it like made sense in the character, I never not noticed it. I never did not notice it. I never did not not notice it not. And so with Gerard Butler's voice, it's like, yo, I get it. He's like, I'm an action hero. And it worked. But I always, it was always noticeable. Like it it never felt natural. I wouldn't say it took me out of it. I would say I never got into it maybe because of that. And by it, I mean him. Same. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's watching a human being. It's watching an average Joe cosplaying John Wayne in their real life. And it, and the end result is a little off-putting. Yeah, you are not wrong. But David, another realization, like an oh what, is when uh, I saw Angela Bassett's name. I did not know she was in this movie. And I guess as is before, we as a people came to fully appreciate Angela Bassett because she is uh, 30 times better than the small shitty role that she's in. Yes. And come to find out the only reason she took this role is to work with Morgan Freeman and come to find out the only reason Morgan Freeman took this role is for money. So thanks, Morgan Freeman, for dragging everybody along. But I'll tell you what, spoiler alert, this is not going on the Angela Bassett shelf because this also comes at a time when action movies did not know how to use Angela Bassett. So uh, we're going to go ahead and leave this one alone. But as various TV news programs in the background have told us, David, the uh, Korean delegation is in town because they're going to meet with the president about some rising tensions along the uh, North Korea, South Korea border. Yes. And so Mike is watching this and discussing it with Lynn Jacobs and the other Secret Service guys. And he's he's itching. You could you could see it. He's like, oh, man, I really miss the action. You know, I miss all the stuff going on. And there's a part of me that's like. It's almost like he's reacting to the action he knows is going to happen in the movie. Because if you take away the movie, he's just excited at the prospect of shit going down because the South Korean faction is in town. Like, there's something about this movie that's normalizing the constant threat of danger. Where, like, it wants you to be on guard and suspicious about everything. And I think that hasn't really served us well in the decades since these since movies like this came out. You know, that's interesting, and you're absolutely right, because what action is he missing? Because most presidencies do not include an invasion of the White House. As one news reporter actually tells us later on in the fucking dumbest thing, he's like, not since the War of 1812, since the British took over the White House, as like, we don't need a fucking history lesson, there's thousands of people dead. But yeah, most action Secret Service people see is like, you know, running along a, a limo in a motorcade and clearing people away as the president walks through a crowd and that kind of stuff. There's you, there's not a lot of combat. So up until this point, what does Mike miss? Like, I mean, obviously, I guess the movie wants us to think that he, the reason why he wants his job back is because he feels like the first lady dying is his own failure. The fact that he was only able to cut the president's seatbelt in time and not Ashley Judd. And so he wants to go back and hopefully what? Hopefully there's another car crash and you're able to save uh, everyone in the car this time? Yeah, they really should have made him a member of the intelligence community and have him have his job 
be the constant monitoring of people. And then he thinks, oh, I don't get a chance to monitor these people. Because as we come to find out later, someone snuck in and shouldn't have been in there. But to make him just this boots-on-the-ground Secret Service agent running alongside cars, talking into his sleeve, like, there's nothing about that job that indicates, oh, man, he's gagging for some action. <laughs> gagging. I, uh, why? Why did you do that? <laughs> you know, David, but this movie is directed by Antoine Fuqua. It's funny because the other guys at the Treasury Department, they got to be absolutely, like, thrilled, like, oh, cool, this guy who's fucking terrible at his job he now works at our job. That was the plot of another Antoine Fuqua movie, The Guilty, where a disgraced cop, Jake Gyllenhaal, part of his punishment is he now works at a 911 call center. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it makes me wonder, like, how many people at your job were like, oh, how did you come to work here? I was bad at my job in a different department, so now I do your thing as punishment. I shoved my boss and they stuck me next to you. So if you're wondering if there's... An advancement opportunity for you. No, they're absolutely <laughs> fucking isn't. Unless you can unshove a boss. But David, we see the president here talking to his son, Connor, who's 18 months later. This guy's got a completely different haircut. He's definitely older. And he's like, hey, man, why don't we go up to Camp David for a while? We'll, we'll go to a fishing trip, hit the ring. And Connor's like, yeah, I don't want to go to Camp David where my mom fucking died. What the fuck is this president's problem, David? How come he didn't get that? We had it at the beginning of the movie where the president had the line that he probably said a million times over. This is going to be another one of those day one moments where the movie's jumping in as though it's just having this conversation for the first time and has not had this conversation in the preceding 18 months. Of course, you don't take your kid to the place where his mom died. Of course, you don't take him there on vacation, you fucking moron. Go take him to the beach instead. Yeah, what's the opposite of Camp David? Camp Mac. You should take him to Camp Mac. It's a, it's a beach. It's a beautiful beach. But David, this president's like a good dad, right? So he's got like, look, I got three minutes before I got to be somewhere. Let's say me and you go get some ice cream. Mac, this movie, I don't know what this movie wants from us. Yeah, so the president's like, okay, I've got three minutes before I'm supposed to leave. That's plenty of time for us to walk down the hallways of the White House, go into the kitchen, get two things of ice cream. I want mint chocolate chip. You want Rocky Road. We'll scoop them out. That's going to leave us with two minutes and 20 seconds left. And so, of course, the Secret Service agent guy comes. He's like, Mr. President, they're ready for you. And the president's like, hey, I have two minutes left. Why, why are you getting me now? Like, you're the president, man. You should not be this bad with your time management. Quick punch up here. He turns to a Secret Service agent and he goes, are they ready for me? Well, I'm ready for some ice cream, bitch. And then he and his son <laughs> sprint down the hall. There's still some love there. He still gets it, right? There's still a little childlike wonder. He's completely redeemed from <laughs> proposing a vacation at his mom's watery grave. But <laughs> you're right. It does make him seem like a fucking idiot. So then he goes to a meeting with his whole crew, right? The VP is there. The vice president, by the way, a little foreshadowing. This dude looks like Mike Pence. Like, it's kind of stunning. It's like he kind of predicted Mike Pence. I, I'm no Mike Pence fan. The treatment of Mike Pence in this movie is unsettling. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They got it right because the vice president here has a completely like stupid fucking look on his face, which is what I associate with Mike Pence. <laughs> Although he doesn't seem to be a religious extremist like Pence does. I mean, maybe. They didn't really flesh out his character. He's also meeting with the vice president. He's meeting with secretary of defense. He's also meeting with the speaker of the house, Morgan Friedman. And I know all this, David, because the names and like statuses or titles of these characters appear in like lower thirds, right? When the president is talking to Morgan Friedman in the lower third, it says Alan Trumbull, speaker of the house. I mean, look, there's a lot of like lower third text to read, which, yeah, I mean, you said it's kind of a docudrama. Like, do I have to remember all of this movie? 
It just seems like a lot. And also the conversation they're having about North Korea, South Korea. I'm a dummy, David, because the movie is foreshadowing so hard that the bad guys in this movie are going to be North Korea or North Korea aligned. But I didn't pay attention to any of this dialogue because it just came across as so generic. The ongoing fuckery of the North Korean leadership, this is like an evergreen conversation, right? Like, oh, uh, North Korea is causing problems. Uh, South Korea could use a, you know, a little bit of like a boost to make sure the North Koreans back off. You know, it's like, oh, they're doing more missile tests. It's like so generic that it like went one ear and out the other, which I guess that's maybe more my problem than the movie's problem. No, it's the movie's problem. I watched this movie the first time, as you know. I just tried to take in the movie. I let it go over my head because I knew I was going to watch this movie a second time, and that's where I get the notes. Holy shit, Mac. The second time I watched this movie, it took me two or three different sittings to get through this chunk because I wanted to make sure I understood, okay, why are they doing this? What are their motivations? And like just getting through this cracker dry plot and just trying to get their motivations down. I was like, who gives a shit? This isn't exciting. This really does play like a docudrama because it's supposed to be grounded in reality. I'd rather they just say, oh no, they really <laughs> they released this new uh, atomic bomb called the Kraken, and we've got a we've got an hour to dismantle it. Like this is just this is procedure. But is the Kraken Greek themed, David? Because a lot of stuff in this movie, I don't know if you could tell already, Olympus has fallen. Is Greek themed? They love their water sports. But back this movie, you know, for as serious as it is and as it's going to be, the score in this movie is real fanfare. It's real patriotic, rah-rah stuff. This score is for people whose favorite song is the West Wing DVD menu. Like, this is right up their alley. Oh, I love all the selections on that menu. But David, enough talk. It's time for a mysterious plane to appear from the Chesapeake Bay area, I think is what it said. This giant plane... Starts flying into DC airspace. How did it get there? How did it just fucking happen? And these fighter jets are like, hey, you need to land, uh, my man. Uh, you need to identify yourself, my guy, or we're going to fucking blow you away. David, this is not some unarmed airplane of peace. This is a fucking flying warship, right? And it blows up one of these fighter jets. And then it somehow blows up the other one. And then this plane is out for blood, okay? It starts opening fire on just like rando people in DC, it's just like, oh, why not? We're here. Duk, 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 duk. Like, there's, is there a military objective that's just like raining down terror? Oh, I guess there are terrorists. That's all the self. <laughs> but David, the hit percentage of this plane's like random people shooting, the accuracy of its stray bullets is insane. It's got like an 80% kill rate on all of its ammunition. So many people just like going about their day in DC are getting uh, horribly gunned down. And this is my first JFC, my first Jesus fucking Christ at the violence of this plane. This was unexpected to say the least. This giant plane comes in. Why it did not get shot down immediately, I don't know. Why the fighter pilots flanking it weren't expecting side guns to come out of this plane, I don't know. But you're absolutely right. There's no Nobody is getting clipped on the streets. Nobody is getting winged by a round. They're getting it in the chest, in the gut, in the head. There's exit wounds. There's just blood splattering everywhere. And Mac, if this is an over-the-top action movie, if this is RoboCop 2 or Punisher Warzone, I'm loving this. But there's something about the realism. If these rounds are coming from a gun out of a jet, they probably would create that kind of carnage. And that bummed me out. That really not took me out of the movie, but it set it set the tone for the rest of the movie that, that was very hard to dig out of. Yeah, I don't know if we needed the cuts down to the street to see all those people uh, getting murdered. 
And also every bullet that didn't hit was probably going into some sort of DC suburb. In fact, one of the F-15s or whatever, it crashes into a suburban house. Uh, I, I, my notes I wrote, oh shit. Yeah, and, th- and that's going to be another one of those 2000s movie things where like, oh, this could happen to you. You could be sitting at home, you know, minding your own business and then a plane crashes into your house. Terror is everywhere. Like when that plane crashed into the neighborhood, I, I was I was bummed out. And there's one shot of some people eating in a restaurant. And then as they look out the window, this uh, warplane flies way too close to them and kind of rattles the restaurant a little bit. And David, uh, I don't know about you, but after September 11th, when I would hear like the kind of whistle of a plane flying by, for half a second, I'd be like, is it going to crash into, you know, I lived in Austin, Texas. What are the terrorists, were they going to try to take out uh, Lance Armstrong's house? Like what What were they after (laughs) in uh, 2002's Austin, Texas? So yeah, I know it didn't make any sense, but seeing that plane fly that close to the window and people kind of uh, afraid of it, I guess I've not completely shaken my post 9-11 brain damage, David, because that fucking bothered me. At the end of this whole action set piece, at the end of this whole sequence, we're going to see the offending plane clip the Washington Monument and the Washington Monument's going to come tumbling down. And I thought about the movie Independence Day when, you know, it's 1997, it's the summer We're all loving the Capitol getting destroyed. We're all loving these skyscrapers getting destroyed. But something happened between 1997 and 2013 that really changed our perspective on a lot of this stuff. And I was thinking that too. When you see the Washington Monument fall in this movie in 2013, hey, guess what? We've seen a real life version of that thing now. I'm not so sure... It has the payoff that you want it to in this movie. Yeah, I mean, if Godzilla had knocked over the Washington Monument, it'd be like, well, Godzilla's going to Zilla, right, man? Or if any other movie had knocked over the Washington Monument, it probably would have like fallen on some hot dog dealer who was like rude to the hero at the beginning of the movie. But when this plane clips the Washington Monument, I think we hear the screams of some tourists inside of it. And then, uh, or maybe that's just my imagination, but then mm-hmm. a chunk of it lands on the 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 mall, the DC mall like area there, and it uh, crushes some people. So it it really and because his violence is not fun, like the movie like trying to like just you know swoop up as many kills as it could get here. Uh, yeah, I, I did not care for it. I was not into this movie. But that again, my feral wife was like, "Oh hell yeah, watching this thing." <laughs> so look, maybe this is maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm a weird, sensitive person, too sensitive for an action movie podcast. Dave, is it time for me to hang up my uh, action hero podcast host bandana? The one I keep around my head, like Rambo? You hold on to that bullwhip and you stay with me. We're both in this together. But David, after that murder plane gets knocked down, which it does, horny for violence Mike Banning runs over to the White House to see if there's anyone he can murder. Well, he's in luck because it's time for a ground assault. It's an action set piece we'll call Attack on Democracy. The ill-defined terrorist group called Koreans for United Freedom stage a brutal attack on the White House. Turns out the South Korean security chief is their leader, Kang. Twist. The handsome and charmless Kang, played by Rick Yoon from The Fast and the Furious, captures President Asher along with the vice president, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and others. We also find out that obvious traitor Forbes is working with the evil Kang. Even with Banning's help, the entire Secret Service gets massacred. So Mike is the last man banning. Kang executes the South Korean prime minister. So it's up to Mike Banning to take out this army of dudes in jeans and t-shirts before they get to the president's son, Connor, played by Finley Jacobson. Meanwhile, Leah's shift at the hospital where she works is no picnic either. Yeah, David, when we first see Rick Yoon on the screen, I was like, where do I know this dude from? He's the bad guy in Fast and Furious. And I was trying to remember the name of his character in Fast and Furious. Do you remember it, David? 
Well, Mac, he's an Asian character in a motion picture, so I'm going to assume his first name is an American name like Ricky and then his last name is something Asian. Am I right? David, how dare you minimize uh, Hollywood screenwriting like that? His character's name was Johnny Tran. Okay, please. He was way <laughs> different than whatever bullshit you were saying. Another victory for Hollywood representation. But David, man, we were out of the frying pan into the fire, I guess, right? Yes. The murder fire. And Mike Bannon can't wait to jump in. He's sitting across the street or next door at the Treasury Department. He sees all this going on. And he's like, oh, I got to be there. So he runs down. He's trying to sort of direct traffic between all of the people panicking and stuff like that. But while he's directing traffic, he sees uh, some Korean guys walking over to the front gate of the White House. And he's like, you hold it right there, you motherfuckers. Pulls a gun on him. Well, Mac, they're suicide bombers. And one of them blows himself up. And Mike Banning goes flying into the air. Uh, is he tucking and rolling? No, Mac, he's T-posing. He's just uh, Jesus Christ up in the air. This shot is amazing. Honestly, if more of the movie was like this, I could get on board. But because the movie's so like grounded and realistic, the fact that all of a sudden we cut to Mike Banning riding an invisible jet-powered pogo stick is uh, insulting. It just was like the dumbest think of the movie i like if you're the director it's like we gotta do anything but this like i don't care if we just cut to another character going oh my god that guy lived that would have been better than this ridiculous uh flight that mike banning takes that's the thing if this is in like a neville dean and taylor movie or if this is in just some wacky movie it absolutely makes sense the crowd's loving it but because it takes place in this movie it just feels like shitty filmmaking it feels like you're not very good at shot selection and you chose this weird comic moment in this very serious movie. But David, before we get into this assault, wuss warning, one of the White House heroes that, that defends the White House against the terrorists is a dog and the terrorists do shoot the dog. And you, of course, hear the, like the whine of the fucking murder dog. So there, so that's a wuss warning. If that's going to ruin the movie for you, then uh, do not watch it. But Mac, I'll tell you what, wuss warnings aren't just for animals. This this movie's going to have quite a few human wuss warnings. Like, in fact, as the KUF, as the Koreans for United Freedom, as they advance on the White House and they're going through the building, they're making sure everybody stays dead. How, how are you feeling about this action as it progresses, Mac? Oh, I feel I had like a, so many JFCs right in a row. So as, as we learned that the South Korean head of security, he was the bad guy. So he basically staffed his entire security team with his terrorist soldiers so the entire South Korean delegation now attacks the White House. And then like a tour bus comes and empties out. All those guys are, excuse me, South Korean, really North Korean terrorists. Well, we'll get into that in a second. But this bus comes and I think like a trash truck too. And the sides of those fall open, revealing like some mini guns. And they just unload on people. Jesus fucking Christ at the violence that comes out of these trash guns. Some other dude gets shot in the face. Jesus fucking Christ at that. And then David... After they've, you know, defeated the Secret Service team, as they're walking through, anyone who's wounded and not dead, the uh, terrorists are shooting them in the face. And the camera is all too happy to show us that kind of JFC as well. So, yeah, a lot of Jesus fucking Christ violent moments in this thing. But, David, the, here's the thing about this. Because this violence is so extreme... I, I hate to say it, but it made for a very riveting start because I was not expecting the level of brutality that this movie had. And because of that, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I definitely, I was engaged the whole time. I think riveting is a perfect word for it because 
it is engaging, like you said, but it is also mirthless. Like I don't want, I don't want to convey any sort of fun with this. But there's a moment here. It gets a little too excessive, but it gets excessive for the sake of the movie, and that's going to be Banning at the door of the White House, waiting to go in, waiting to apprehend the KUF, and he's watching one Secret Service agent after another come through the door and just get mowed down. One after another, after another, after another. Nobody's learning any lessons here. Now, I get that Banning has to be a lone wolf. I get that this is a diehard trope where everyone's wiped out. We, we got to depend on one guy. But you're asking me to assume that the Secret Service are some of the dumbest people alive, which raises the question, Mac. Does a movie like this, where the government has flaws and has weaknesses that are very easily exploitable, does a movie like this inspire patriotism or does it inspire cynicism? Because I could very easily see a January 6th type of person watching this movie and saying, see, I told you, they're all crooked and they all, they're all they all inept and nobody knows what they're doing. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think it's supposed to inspire patriotism, but I I don't think it does. It kind of reminds me of the movie American Sniper. I, I know it was like a book and then an actual war, uh, but I, you know, I don't, I'm not like a military scholar, but at some point, uh, Bradley Cooper's character, he goes down there to like lead a raid because he's like, hey, I'm sick of watching you guys get shot through my scope as you go through a door. I've actually had some training here that you grunts have not had. So maybe it's just the fact these Secret Service agents do not have combat training like that. But I mean, I don't know. I'm doing the work for the movie here. So the level of violence in this movie, I think it has to do with post 9-11 stuff. And I say that because the idea of showing a terrorist attack as a PG-13 thing, maybe they're like post 9-11, if we're going to have a movie like this, even though it was like, what, 2013, we need to have it feel realistic. Like it needs, there needs to be some terror involved in the audience. And sure, okay, you know, if that's what you think, great. But when it comes to action movies, David, you know, you expect a little bit of like leeway with, you know, physics and, and how things work and a little bit of like, uh, you know, heightened reality. But for some reason, when it comes to like the White House and White House stuff, I don't know why, but it's. I feel like there's a greater burden on the movie to uh, show how these things would actually work. So the fact that that murder airplane was able to get that close to DC, the whole time I was watching it, I was like, would that actually happen? Would they only put two planes on it? I don't think I would have thought that if the murder plane was attacking the Mall of Americas, right? But because it's the White House, again, I think there is that greater burden to make the Secret Service response or the military response more in line of what would actually happen in reality. And I, I feel like this movie was off from that noticeably. Did that, did you, do you have any take on that, DJ? You know, the logic combs that this movie has to go through in order for it to make sense. Like, yeah, this, this betrays everything we hope about our government response. You know, if there is a plane headed toward the White House, we have confidence that it's going to get shot down before it even takes out a single person. The, the buy of this movie is to, Get rid of everything that you've thought of about the systems that help us sleep at night and just watch it go tits up. I don't know. I have a really hard time with it. Yeah. And if you're thinking this episode is just going to be us like dunking on it the whole time, once we get past this initial attack, the movie does get a little bit more fun. So <laughs> please stick with us and it's not going to be <laughs> a, a complete shit fest. But yes, at some point we see a Secret Service agent. He's inside the White House. The White House is completely overrun and he's like on his walkie talkie and he's like, Olympus has fallen. I repeat, Olympus has fallen. And that's when we all turn to each other in the movie theater and go, that's the name of the movie. So the KUF, they come in and they take the White House. But Mac, is that really it? Like, are they just here for the White House? Is is there treasure in there? Is this base? Like, I don't understand the appeal 
of taking this building. Oh, they'll tell us later, sort of, David. <laughs> and so Kang is going to broadcast, he's going to make his first broadcast, his first communication to the war room. I don't know how he has the FaceTime number for the DC war room, but I guess they patched him right in. And in this war room, you know, you see um, Angela Bassett's character and you see Army General Clegg played by alligators, Robert Forrester, always happy to see him. <laughs> but in King's first broadcast, what does he do, David? He shoots the South Korean prime minister in the head. Yeah, there's no using him for leverage or negotiations. This is just a bullet to the temple. And I'm watching this movie thinking, well, fictional or not, maybe don't execute someone else's leader. Like, I'm no patriot or nothing, but like, if I saw a fictional American president get shot in another movie, I wouldn't feel too great about that. And then a year later, the interview comes out where uh, Kim Jong-un, played by the very funny Randall Park, gets it. But David, by the way, this whole time when Mike Banning is like rushing in to help, he's not like in uniform. He's just like dressed in street clothes, firing a weapon. I guess, thank God, these terrorists are all Koreans. Then our White House defense wouldn't rely on racial divides. I had a real hard time with that, too, because as the KUF advances, it's just a bunch of dudes in jeans and T-shirts. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing visual about them to identify them as the enemy. You know, they're not wearing uniforms. They're not wearing all black or anything like that. These are just like dudes at Home Depot. And like to watch Mike Banning come in and shoot down regular looking dudes, it, it's a bit jarring for me. I want to see him mow down bad guys, not just people. But David, all that brings me to a question. Is this movie a diehard? Is this a diehard, David? Absolutely it is. It's, it's one man taking down a group of terrorists in a single location. I think this is very much a diehard. Good, because I have some diehard-esque complaints later on. Yay, get excited for complaints. But David, with President Asher hostage, Speaker Trumbull, played by Morgan Freeman, is now officially the acting president. Morgan Freeman is president. Uh-oh, David. Does that mean an asteroid is on the way? Uh, here's another punch-up. As soon as he's sworn in as president, I want to cut to, like, far side of the galaxy. Go ahead, put, like, lower third, you know, like, out by <laughs> Pluto or whatever. Have an asteroid turn around and be like, and then like, Morgan, I see you. Kind of like the Eye of Sauron. Because, oh, it's coming to make a fucking deep ass impact. You know it. I would love that. But Mac, as Mike Banning plays hide and seek through the White House's secret passages, we learn of Kang's boring demands to have some troops withdraw. And we also learn of Kang's secret plan to extract the top secret Cerberus codes from the president, an admiral played by some dude, and Secretary of Defense Ruth McMillan played by... Who is that? No, it can't be. Oh, no, Melissa Leo. No. Mike Banning finds first kid Connor and devises a plan to extract the kid from the White House and succeeds with almost no trouble at all. Wait, almost no trouble? What's the trouble then? What does he have to do? Oh, he's just got to break the neck of a terrorist. Oh, that sounds hard. Well, that's because our American necks are thick with freedom, Mac. The neck of a terrorist is like one of those granola bars that's mostly chromes. Ah, yeah. Nature Valley. The very same, Mac. The very same. The hunt is on, Mac. Mike Banning is going to be dieharding it through through the White House, uh, avoiding fights every step of the way. It's a dirty job, David, but someone's got to murder it. And I guess it's up to, to Mike Banning here. Uh, Melissa Leo joining the Morgan Freeman Paycheck Club. Oh my God, she earns her check in this movie. Like every scene that she is in or every scene that features her maybe some of the best work in the movie. My question is why? It's not like she's playing a strong character or a brave character. It's not like she gets great lines or great scenes. This bumps me out for the actor Melissa Leo. You know what, though? She does a good job of actually seeming scared in these situations. Because there's another uh, Navy admiral or something like that who's about to get executed. 
his idea of being scared is just like really wide eyed. Whereas Melissa Leo just, you know, she actually dares to have emotions. Crazy. But no, she's she's great in her small role. David, we start to get a little bit more about like what the fuck this terrorist group is. It turns out they're not North Koreans, but they're South Koreans who are, are allied with North Korea and they want uh, a united Korea. And David, I think what this movie understood was they're like, look, if we explicitly make these villains North Korea, that might be a problem. We don't want to get our emails read out loud like Amy <laughs> Pascal or whatever happened to her. Read out loud. I mean, <laughs> you know, leaked on the internet. So yeah, the, the bad guys are not officially North Koreans. They are like North Korean-esque or whatever. You know what, though? It doesn't fucking matter. But at some moment, Forbes, Dylan McDermott, the president's like, Forbes, you know, what the fuck, man? What's the going rate for souls these days? Implying that Dylan McDermott sold his. And then Agent Forbes, what'd you say to me? He instantly loses it. And then he gets like real pissy at the president. Did you not anticipate the president would be less than pleased by your involvement? The fact that he was like so easy to rile up. If I was king, I would have murdered him immediately. Even even Forbes's reasons are flimsy because President Asher calls him on it. He's like, you know what? You, you know, used to means something you know what happened to you and then forbes's response is this sort of garden variety this country used to mean something but now look what you did with it globalization and fucking wall street what about them we might be on the same page about this if you could just elaborate on what your issues are but instead of just these like these templates oh yeah globalization boo wall street like come on guys yeah again just vague enough to where you're like yeah we know hold on maybe but then we've got Mike Banning. He goes into the Oval Office room and he looks behind a picture and there's going to be a safe there. Thank God they didn't change the safe codes after they let go of Mike Banning because he was able to open it up and get the sat phone, the little satellite phone. And he's able to call into the war room. He's telling them the situation. I've got, you know, I'm on the ground. I, I've got eyes. And the people in the war room are arguing with Lynn Jacobs. They're like, hey, how do we know we could trust this guy? It's like, what is what indication do you have that you can't trust this guy? Like, how can we trust this guy? You know, how do we know we can trust this guy who did nothing to kill the first lady? Like, I, I, I don't get their hesitation on this one. Yeah, let's say you don't trust him. Then what happens? Oh, uh, you, you, you're ordered to kill yourself, Mike Banning. <laughs> but yes, David, there's like three different like safe codes or access things that they did not change the password to in the 18 months since Mike Banning left, which again, that just like, that takes me right out of it, man. That's just so stupid. Speaking of codes, Mac, let's talk about what's going on with Cerberus. Do you have to, David? <laughs> it's the plot of the movie, Mac. So Kang is, his real motivation here is to get the three codes that'll activate Cerberus. And Cerberus is the system, it's meant to detonate nuclear bombs on their way to their targets so that, you know, we can call them back at the last minute. It's a final fail safe in a nuclear attack. If after we've launched the nukes, for some reason we want we don't want them to blow up their target. If these three different people, the president, the whoever's, if they enter in their Cerebus codes, then those bombs will detonate. Which, you know, as Cerebus guarded the gateway to hell, uh, David, I think these good intentions of these codes, I, I think they're guarding a, a similar realm, David, because the trouble's afoot, right? Yeah, what Kang wants to do with this code is detonate all of the missiles in their silos. So he just he's just going to destroy tens of millions of Americans. But he needs the codes from the three people in the safe room. So he's going to pull them up one by one. First one's going to be the Admiral. He's going to pull a knife up to the Admiral's throat. He's going to be like, you give me that code. The Admiral's refusing. The Admiral's refusing until finally President Asher says, 
Go ahead and give it, give him the code, Joe. He'll never get mine. Uh, yeah, he clearly will because you just ordered the admiral to give up his codes. Like all you need to do is show the president someone in danger, and he's clearly going to give it up. I, I get no sense that he's doing the right thing on this. Yeah. Plus, at this point, the heroes do not know that King's plan is to use the Cerebus code to detonate nuclear missiles, not while they're in the air, David, but while they're in their bunkers and strategic locations all across the country. And maybe the reason they don't suspect this, David, is because I don't think it would work like that. That just seems fucking stupid because they're not even armed. I, yeah, uh, you know, whatever. I, I don't want to pick apart the MacGuffin in this movie because you're not meant to pick it apart. But again, it just it doesn't really work for me here. I, honestly, I don't feel like they needed it. Like their initial demands, which are ridiculous, that basically the U.S. withdraws from South Korea. That could have been enough. I guess the movie was like, no, nah, man, that's a smokescreen. We're playing four-dimensional chess here. We got some made-up bullshit. But David, when they say these demands to the uh, bunker team, the bunker team is like, we don't negotiate with terrorists, but let, well, maybe, well, hold on, maybe we do. While Mike Banning is in the Oval Office, a terrorist comes in to check out what's going on here, what's all the noise? And there's an Oval Office fight between Banning and a masked terrorist here. And David, most of the action from here on out is hand-to-hand and like some short firefights. And I have to say, it is pretty solid. I mean, after there's one big set piece here with um, some anti-aircraft missiles coming up. But for the most part, it's just some combat. And it's cool. And they do a really good job. And all the stunt people sell it. So yeah, I have to say the action in this movie is, is very solid. You know what? I'd like to amend my answer to the question that you asked at the top of the show. What is the appeal of Gerard Butler? I think this is a lot of it. Because to his credit... Gerard Butler can sell combat. Like, he's really good at selling thrown punches. He's really good at selling landed punches. I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the combat in the Oval Office. You're absolutely right. There's going to be a lot of hand-to-hand throughout the second half of this movie, and I think it's it's the more enjoyable action of the movie. But Banning's going to make quick work of the terrorist that comes into the Oval Office. He's going to get back on the sat phone with Director Lynn Jacobs and with everybody else in the war room. He's trading intel back and forth with them. In fact, let's play some audio here of Lynn Jacobs asking Mike Banning a question. Jacobs, I've got something coming your way. I got a Korean commando in front of me. What is that? Is he alive? Ask me a serious question. So here's here's the problem I have with Gerard Butler in this movie. This movie takes the Die Hard template. It takes the John McClane stuck in a building, wisecracking his way through terrorists, and tries to apply it to Gerard Butler, except it replaces charm with sarcasm. And what you have is just Banning being a dick to everybody. Like, he really could just be straight talking with them. You would think he would be, since he is a Secret Service agent, he is a government agent. You would think he would have uh, some sort of respect for the higher offices, but like, he's just kind of being a shit right now. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the only reason we know what the Cerebus codes are is because later on, when they're talking about Cerebus codes, banning, he's a man of the people, right? So he asks the people's questions like, what the fuck are the Cerebus codes? Because I, I think I got to write the fucking no. And that's why they tell us. But David, there's a that line he gives when they're like, did you kill the person or whatever? And his response is, ask me a serious question. It's so needlessly shitty. And I'm not proud of this, David, but it's it's a mark out moment for me. I marked out at this line. <laughs> There's something so, even though it was like wildly inappropriate in that situation, it was such like a badass action hero line. 
Like, did you kill him? Ask me a serious question. Of course I fucking killed him. It was just like too over the top badass that I was like, ah, oh, God damn it. But hell yeah. Olympus has fallen. I, I did. I liked it a little too much. No, I, I think that's perfectly fine. There's, you know, for me, it's it's the movie that it's taking place in because there's so much of this movie. If it was taking place in Stone Cold starring Brian Bosworth, yeah, marking out all over the place. But like, it's still a very heavy movie. Why are you being a dick to d- director Lynn Jacobs? You know, it's funny you should say that because you know who would deliver the line perfectly? Stone Cold Steve Austin. Like, <laughs> Stone yes! Cold, did you did you stun the terrorist? Ask me a serious question. <laughs> He pops a fucking one hundred percent, yeah, Coors or whatever he drinks. But David, when Mike Banning is like picking apart the corpse of the terrorist, he finds a, a photo in the terrorist's pocket of Connor, the first kid, and he's like, "They're after Connor." So now Banning is like going through the White House. He's trying to recover Connor, and we get a lower third here that says Lincoln bedroom, eleven fifty six p.m. Do I need to fucking know this? I mean, I guess the time is interesting, and I've definitely seen. Obviously, I've seen lower thirds telling us locations before, but have you ever seen a lower third in a fictional movie telling us what room a person's in? Not unless that room explodes or has something important happen to it. Because yeah, you're going to, you know, you want it to feel like you're reading a police report. All right, at 11.56, he was in the Lincoln bedroom when shots were fired. But the movie is just like, hey, just letting you know it's (laughs) 11.56. Like, there's no reason for it. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like a video game where it's like, okay, if I don't need to remember that this room has like murder crows in it or a zombie, then it's like a Lincoln bedroom. If there's a picture of Lincoln, maybe I'll piece it together. Maybe I won't. I don't know. But uh, he finds Connor <laughs> just kind of in the crawl space of the White House. And and then some bad guys are like, oh, we hear some noise. They start shooting in the wall. And so, uh, biggity, biggity, boom, uh, Connor gets rescued. Crawl space is being very generous. Like... This is these are just flat out corridors. It makes me wonder if they really are corridors in the actual White House because I was kind of hoping for some tight quarters. I was kind of hoping for something they had to shimmy through or, or crawl through. But this is just like, man, this is a pretty decent sized apartment. Yeah. And you know who had those uh, corridors installed in the White House, David? And it's funny because Kang even knows it. It was Jimmy Carter. So he could sneak out at night and go to his night boxing because he loved wearing a disguise and just boxing people in the streets of D.C. He loved getting his aggressions out through his fists. It a fucking psycho. But David, I'm, gl- I'm glad that Connor got rescued so fast because, you know, this threat of violence that was going to hang over a kid's head, I didn't really enjoy that. But the fact that it was over so quick really makes me think maybe just cut this whole fucking sequence. You're not wrong. Yeah, I, I was right there with you. When Mike Banning finds that photograph of Connor... I'm immediately thinking, oh, if you kill Connor, this movie's going to be an absolute chappy slayer. This thing is going to head chappy, over the bottom. Chappy slayer. He makes such quick work of it. There is no obstacle here. There's a brief obstacle where it's actually one of the tenser moments of the movie where uh, Connor's climbing up a, you know, essentially a chimney, essentially this sort of chute. Uh, and Connor has to hold for a moment while this terrorist is looking for him, but then Banning chokes him out and. You can go on up ahead, Connor. You're you're in the clear. This is going to be a running theme throughout the second half of this movie. Uh, Mike Banning makes quick work of everything. Yeah. Mike Banning, don't fuck around because he's got people to kill who are maybe North Korea aligned. <laughs> but Mike Banning interrogates some KUF soldiers, Cuff, and <laughs> finds out more about Kang, what his deal is. But thanks to some intel from that traitor Forbes, Kang is on to Mike Banning. That's right. Secretary McMillan is going to get tortured for her Cerberus code. 
And Mike Banning discovers Forbes is crooked, which then leads to Mike Banning murdering Forbes. General Clegg launches an attack on the White House, but they are foiled by the KUF and their experimental anti-aircraft superweapon, the Hydra 6. It's an action set piece we'll call more Greek-themed violence. But David, it's actually our experimental anti-aircraft superweapon. Uh, our tax dollars paid for the Hydra 6, this thing that, uh, you know, once you turn on becomes uh, like a, a gun in a video game shooter. <laughs> we're, we're amazing at building the things that destroy ourselves. But Mac, this... This whole chunk, let's start it off by talking about Ray Monroe. Ray Monroe is going to be one of the characters in the War Room. I forget what the lower third set. He's going to be played by Sean O'Brien. And the only reason I bring him up is because he's going to add a little touch of like country flavor to this movie. I don't know. Let's hear him delivering some some very important lines in this movie. King Yon Sack, sir, this is one of the most wanted terrorists in the world. He's brought across the DMZ as a child after his father was executed for crimes against the North Korean state. While they were crossing the border, his mother was killed by an American landmine. This guy masterminded the 2004 bombing of the British Embassy in Seoul. And he funneled Pyongyang uranium enrichment technology from Pakistan. He's never before been photographed or identified by any Western intelligence agency. I mean, Jesus Christ, nobody ever thought to look for him inside the South Korean government. Look, I don't care who he is with the force. It's out of place in this movie, Mac, but I love Sean O'Brien as Ray Monroe. Yeah, he kind of fits that same role as that dude you liked in Speed, where, like, we need a guy to say a thing to move this thing along. I'll say it. Like, you you got it, man. You fucking got it. Uh, but, David, we've already got the Cerebus code out of the one guy. And, you know, like a video game, we got to pace these things out. So now that the bad guys are well-rested, let's get the Cerebus code out of Melissa Leo here. Hey, also, why? They really do take their time. They get the first code. They go get a sandwich, they go get a smoke, and then they come back and get the, like, oh, that's that drives me nuts. But this Ruth torture scene, Melissa Leo as Ruth McMillan getting the code extracted from her, do not like. This movie was actually kind of winning me back up until this point, but it with this, it just kind of tumbles back down a little bit. Yeah, and again, the president was like, um, okay, Melissa Leo, you can go ahead and give up the code. And for a second, unlike that fucking Navy admiral, she was like, I'm not, I may not even do this. So she's definitely made of sterner stuff. Than that uh, that admiral guy. Not that it's a competition. Not a you know survive torture competition. Uh, but yes, Forbes sees footage of Banning. He's like, I know who that dude is. He's Mike Banning. And Kang is like, Do we need to worry about him? And Forbes is like, Nah, <laughs> I'm sure he won't murder me. And so he goes. Forbes he goes after Mike Banning and he bumps into them. But Banning does not know Forbes is even there. So he's like, Forbes, what are you doing here, my friend? And Forbes is like, Okay, instead of just shooting Mike Banning right now. I'm going to put on a weird performance to pretend that I am just, you know, uh, also a victim of this terrorist act. David, it's a master class in an actor. I guess acting is hard. You know what I mean? I guess that's what Dylan McDermott was trying to tell us here. Because his character, Mike Forbes, is one of the worst actors on the planet. Yeah, he's, it's basically Dylan McDermott saying, hey, do you think some Secret Service agent could do what I do? Watch this. All right, let's just play the clip. I think the clip, I think the audio can convey the sort of game over man quality of, of Forbes' delivery here. This place is coming rattle, man. I can't think straight. You okay? No. Not for real. This fucking Kang guy is crazy. How do you know his name? Like it really it really is as shaky and nervous as it sounds. He even has a cigarette out. He's shaking his hand. And he's doing all of this for what? 
because at some point he's going to slip up and say, oh, it's just this Kang. He's got me so rattled. And Mike Banning's going to be like, wait, how did you know his name? And the jig is up with old Forbes. He pulls out his gun and starts shooting. Hey, man, you've been acting up until here. Why don't you just tell him you were on Kang's security detail? Things went south and you got out of there with your life. Why did this have to be as hard as it was? Or just shoot him right away. And so Mike Banning quickly defeats Forbes. As Forbes is dying, he's like, I don't, I don't remember what he says, but it's something like, like, things got out of hand, man. I, I guess I have regrets. And Banning's like, don't throw your life away for nothing. Here, tell Kang you killed me into the radio. And Forbes does and dies a hero's death, I guess. I don't care. There's a payoff to an arc that does not exist. Like, we don't have any growth with Forbes. We don't give a fuck. It's just more quick work for Banning. Like, oh, well, that saved me a step of having to pretend to be dead. Like, thanks. Thanks, Forbes. Yeah. You know what would have been awesome here? If he's like, why, Forbes? Why'd you do it? And Forbes is like, fucking globalization. And then Mike Banning would have given a knowing nod and be like, fucking Wall Street, man. And they're like, yeah. I get it, man. But I don't. I walk up to that edge, I don't fucking cross it like you, Forbes, you piece of shit. So, Connor, rescue. Forbes, killed. Banning, doing great. Doing great. Hydra 6, ready for attack. So this is going to be this giant experimental weapon that comes out of the loading dock of the White House? I don't know. There's a platform that raises. Starts taking out all of Robert Forster's men because he's sending an attack on the White House. He, he wants nothing to do with Mike Banning. He's got the toughest motherfuckers and he's going to solve it himself. So he knows about the Hydra 6. He's in the military. He knows what it's capable of. He still sends his men out to certain death. Like, this is not inspiring confidence. And by the way, it it destroys the White House to a degree where Mike Banning falls down four stories. I don't know what this movie wants from me. It's going off the rails really quick. Yeah, and apparently news crews are still allowed to get pretty close because immediately after the attack, news coverage is like, look at the White House. It's fucking destroyed. And this general who just ordered this ill-advised operation, all of his men are dead. He's trying to save face, so he he's pissy, and he gets on the phone, and he's like, Banning, you need to stand down. Okay, you, you're the guy fucking things up. And acting President Trumbull like, stands up to the general, and he's like, He's like, General, I'm the fucking president now, and you don't get to give orders. I give orders. Shut the fuck up. David, I remember watching House of Cards when it first aired during the Obama presidency. And at some point, uh, Kevin Spacey's character you know, became an evil vice president. And I just watched that show. You just had to laugh because it's like, imagine Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, having these kind of like Machiavellian moves. It just is comedy. Which is funny because you think about it now and like, isn't that what QAnon believes that Joe Biden is some sort of like criminal mastermind? (laughs) Imagine current Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, standing up to an army general. I cannot. You really have to cast that thing perfectly. But then on the other side of that coin, I remember, oh, what was the story where uh, where George W. choked on a pretzel, but really it was Dick Cheney kicking the shit out of him or whatever? Like. Who knows what's going on behind those doors? Yeah, I could see Dick Cheney doing a lot of this evil shit, but I don't know. But Kang needs to tell people he's serious and also remind people that he's still got hostages or whatever. So what does Kang do now? Kang's going to step up and basically execute Vice President, not Mike Pence, for the Americans' foolish assault on the White House. And so Mike Banning's going to interrupt the feed with some words of warning for Kang. Mike Banning saves Secretary McMillan from a public execution, but is unable to stop Kang before Kang hides among the remaining hostages and sneaks onto the departing helicopter. Good news, though. The helicopter blows up. 
If that description seemed a little confusing, this was a confusing chunk. This is a mess. This is this is confusing, and I think the movie thinks it's being clever. I think the movie thinks it's misdirecting you. No, this is just a bad movie. It's it's almost like it throws a twist at you, and it's like, haha, remember this twist? And you're like, yeah, of course. I wasn't not expecting this. But Mike Banning, he senses the end game is near, and so he decides to call his wife, who's been, at this point, you know, because she's a nurse, uh, and she's in the hospital dealing with all these many victims of the murder plane attack. And so they have a, a phone call here that I, I don't get at all. Yeah, they're just checking in on each other. You know, they're both trying to sell the idea that they're not busy, but they're like, oh, I'm having a busy day. Oh, me too. They have a phone call that displays how loveless their marriage is. It's really just like they're not telling each other the truth. They're kind of being coy with each other. They're asking each other, hey, are you coming home tonight? Uh, I'll try. Uh, you know, I'll work real hard to come home. I'm just glad Mike Banning and Leah don't have kids because there would almost be a shot of them, like a cut to their home and just this kid rattling a cup back and forth across their crib, just wanting to be fed or cared for. Like, this is not a good couple. Yeah, their conversation, it's like people are listening in on it and they don't, either one of them doesn't want to say what's really going on, which might be true in the case of Mike Banning, but is not true in the case of his wife. His wife could be like, oh my God, Mike, I'm glad you're okay. I'm so, uh, it's a fucking madhouse. It's a slaughterhouse down here. Instead, she's like, yeah, it works okay. It's just, uh, it, it is weird. But then, you know, since again, sensing endgame, Mike Banning is like, all right, time to talk to Kang. And he hacks into the communication system. So we're now he's FaceTiming with Kang. And they're kind of talking shit back and forth to each other a little bit. Banning's doing his tough talk. He's letting Kang know, I'm coming for you. And he says something to the effect of, when I get to you, I'm going to put a knife through your neck. And then follows that up with, and then I'm going to leak the photos of your body to the press. Because I know you like that kind of shit. So I don't quite get this line, Mac. And I think, to the best of my estimation, the movie really wanted to make Kang out to be this ultimate bad guy. This you know embodiment of true evil. But it just kind of ran out of time. And so it's just using dialogue like this where it's like, oh, you are the kind of person to put photos of a dead body on online. Like, I don't I don't know what you want me to do with this information. Yeah, I think that's like what ISIS did. I don't think that's what the fictional KUF has done in the five minutes we've known they've existed. But what Mike Banning says is, I'm going to put a knife in your brain. Does he do that later in the movie? He absolutely does. But at the same time, that's not a good trash talk, right? I'm going to put a knife in your brain. Yeah, a good one. It just seems like, here's what I know about Mike Banning, uh, super uncreative. Only using half of his brain here, the murder half. Oh, he's also got a tech half of his brain, though, Mac, because not only is he able to tap into the video feed and, and call his shot with Kang, but then he's able to block Kang's video access. More effortless work from Mike Banning. I don't know where he got his degree in, com in computer engineering. But he sure does know his way around goddamn everything in this movie. So King decides, I'm going to act like I'm letting Secretary of Defense Melissa Leo go. But as she gets out the White House doors, I'm going to shoot her. David, is this because King was evil or is this because King was trying to draw out Mike Banning? Oh, both, I will say. I'll go ahead and say both because we haven't really seen Kang be evil. So I think this is the movie's opportunity to make him... To make you really shake your fist at him, say, don't you do that to Melissa Leo. But then also, I think, yeah, it, again, doing the work for the movie, but you are able to pinpoint where Mike Banning is going to be if you put Melissa Leo there. So I, I think so. I'll give the movie credit here. 
But David, I think this movie does want to be patriotic because as Melissa Leo is getting dragged off, instead of saying like the Our Father or if you want to show that she's like snapped, maybe singing Happy Birthday or something, what is she saying as she's being dragged on the floor, excuse me, dragged across the floor, presumably to her death? She is reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Well, she, I think she's being pulled by her hair and she's like holding on to the, to the guy's arm as... This is rough. This is more docudrama shit. This is the kind of thing that you would find out someone really said in a true event and it would be used as a rallying cry. But like, this is a writer of a fictional movie who chose to do this. It feels really gross. Uh, But as King is about to execute uh, Melissa Leo, Banning comes in, bip, 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 and like shoots a bunch of uh, terrorists. Melissa Leo escapes, thank God, and she's able to leave this movie. But now King... For some reason at this point, after everything the terrorists have done, the bunker gang decides to give in to their demands. They're like, fine, we'll withdraw the troops from South Korea, basically giving North Korea unblocked access to unleash their war machine on South Korea, potentially causing millions of of deaths. Uh, Even though the White House has been destroyed and the position of we don't negotiate with terrorists Basically means like you guys can kill the president. Just think about this even just politically. Like take the shitty way out of this. Instead of thinking like a human, think of it like a shitty politician. The optics of this demand you don't give into the terrorists. But they do. They fucking do. Why Morgan Freeman? Because he's like, uh, like we want a helicopter, the bad guys. And it's like uh, to, you know, fully fueled. And we're going to put the president on it. And then we're going to fly away to some undisclosed location. And... You know, at the last minute, they're like, all right, what do you want us to do? They're getting in the helicopter. Uh, President Trumbull, what do you want to fucking do? And he's like, I'll let him, let him have it. Why cast Morgan Freeman in the role of this uh, dude who just caves? He's just a, a fucking dude who, uh, in the moment, was weak as shit. Is it because you don't expect that from Morgan Freeman? Oh, I think so. Actually, as soon as you said that, that makes sense. Because I think this movie tries to do a lot of misdirects, but they're very cheap. And I wouldn't doubt it if that's one of them. The thing about it is uh, we haven't talked about the conceit of the movie and how it doesn't work. Here's the thing. If you kidnap the president, the president is no longer the president, basically. So then they move on to the acting president. So, like, what are you accomplishing by kidnapping the president? Hell, even assassinating the president because you're not stopping the machine from working. The only thing stopping the machine from working is Morgan Freeman making this decision. Like, I I don't know. (laughs) I I really, I don't have an answer to your question, Mac. I don't know why they picked Morgan Freeman to make that decision in that moment. The fact that you put Morgan Freeman in a role where he is, where he makes the completely unwise move, where he's a fucking stupid guy, that is unexpected. But then what what are you saying by doing that? Is this a commentary on like America's dumb foreign policy? It sure fucking isn't. It's not that I don't know what you're doing here, but a truly baffling capitulation by the White House bunker team. Just so stupid. But that goes back to the point I was making about patriotism versus cynicism, where I wonder if someone's watching this movie just being like, the government would cave like that. Not my government, though. Like, I don't. eh, Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) And so the plan by the terrorists is they were going to take a handful of hostages uh, and then put them in a chain gang and dress them all in black, but also dress all in black other hostages. So therefore, the U.S. government snipers can't tell who's a hostage, who's specifically the president, and who's a bad guy, right? And so uh, at this moment, the helicopter explodes. Why? 
I don't know why. Oh, well, I guess we're supposed to believe that Kang was on board, sabotaged the helicopter, blew it up to blow himself up and, you know, to make to fake his death, essentially. But as far as the movie goes, I did not see this coming. I was not surprised. Uh, I was a little worried that I was supposed to be surprised, but I didn't. Yeah, it was it was out of left field. Yeah. So King's plan is that he will fake his own death and fake the death of the president. And then he will escape out of a secret hole in the White House basement with the president to live to fight another day. Which is fine if you are some, like, cult leader. But when he was explaining the plan to the other terrorists, I don't see how the terrorists would be like, well, why can't I survive with the president? Why do I got to blow myself up? If you want them to think you're dead, why don't you be dead? Like, you know, it just, I didn't realize that King had this kind of godlike, uh, you know, pull or sway or influence over his, over the KUF. But I guess he does. It's a cult of personality, David. Because <laughs> who's got more personality than Kang? <laughs> but this plan, you know, let's all disguise ourselves as hostages. We'll all chain gang our way out to the helicopter. We, we've we seen hard-boiled. We know how to how to remedy this. You know, all they needed to do, all the, you know, uh, all the hostages needed to do was pick a moment to just drop to the ground and then let the, the military pick off the people standing. I don't know how we let them get on the helicopter. The government's really letting me down in this movie. Yeah, but the idea that King would kill himself, Mike Banning treats that the same way he treats a birthday present for his wife. He ain't buying it. But Mac, where could Kang and the president be? Probably still in the bunker trying to crack the Cerberus code. Kang opens up the nuclear gates of hell, but not before Mike Banning takes the elevator down to save the day. Mike Banning unceremoniously murders Kang before making slow work of disabling the Cerberus system. So the uh, White House bunker crew is like, Banning, stand down. The president's dead. And Banning's like, I don't, I don't think he would. I think King still got him. They're still here. And then <laughs> Trumbull's like, well, if the president's still here, you can't let him leave. You just fucking did let him leave, Trumbull. As far as you know, the president was getting on the plane in a hood. Okay. Now, uh, now, oh, now, I changed my mind. It's a, it's a bad idea. We can't, we can't let him die twice. I guess. See, now I'm starting to wonder if this is the ineptitude of the people on screen, or if this is just shitty writing. Like, because you're absolutely right, it doesn't add up. And I wonder if the movie didn't think it through, but yet it still fits within the movie. That's the kind of movie it is. So then I, I keep waiting for the scene. Like, okay, when is Kang gonna start torturing the president to get his Cerebus code? But then I guess he doesn't need it because they cracked it. They just figured out the number. I didn't know that was an option. We come to find out they really only needed the first two so that they they could brute force the the final one instead of brute forcing all three. That would take forever, but one one's manageable. But like, were we supposed to forget that they were in the process of, of cracking those codes? Because they get on the helicopter with two of the three codes cracked. Oh my God, Kang is dead. The president is dead. Thank God they didn't figure out that Cerberus code. Like, what were we supposed to be thinking as audience members at this point in the movie? Well, I was just confused that they were able to crack it because I don't think they could crack my iPhone in that amount of time. But I guess they're able to crack the Cerberus code. That seems that seems improbable, David. I'm with you. Yes, I, I agree. We're going to get to the final showdown. Mike Banning's going to take the elevator down to the bunker. It's going to be Banning and Asher versus Kang. Asher's going to get shot. In a little tussle with Kang, Kang's going to pull out some double knives. This is underwhelming. I, You know, this is the big climactic fight, especially if it's two on one. I kind of wanted a little uh, uh, Bucky and Captain America versus Iron Man, something thrilling. But this isn't this. This isn't that. Yeah, maybe they could have set up some sort of like magic punch that the president needed to like 
you know, pull off in the beginning and then have a callback to it here. But David, Rick Yoon is not a small man. He's pretty big. And as we can see from some kicks here, Kang, or Rick Yoon, whatever, he has some martial arts training. Kang is fresh, right? Because he's just been hanging out in a bunker, whereas Banning has been through hell. Now, did we see him go through hell the same way that John McClane went through hell in Die Hard? No. You get a sense at the end of Die Hard that John Die Hard, played by Bruce Willis, is exhausted, right? He's been beaten to shit. But Banning here, he's been beaten to shit, but you don't really get a, a sense that he, he is. So what you have, David, here is you have King. He's fresh, right? He's you know well-rested. He's ready to go. Whereas Mike Banning, though, even though he's tired, he's like in fourth quarter mode. He's already been like warmed up. He's already killed some guys. Like he's already in full-on you know beast mode. So David, full-on beast mode Mike Banning versus fresh legs King. Banning wins that fight, as we see. He puts a knife in his brain. But David, who should have won that fight? I imagine Kang would have won that fight nine out of ten times. The one time out of ten is when it takes place in this movie because Mike Banning, by this point in the movie, is infallible. He is, I mentioned it offhandedly a, a moment ago when the Hydra Six destroys the White House, where there's a part where Banning is on the roof of the White House. You know, he gets blown away. He falls through the White House, essentially, down four stories not a scratch on him, not a shattered back, not a cut, anything like that. And the movie doesn't even draw attention to it. It's just it's just a typical day for Mike Banning. Seeing that character take that level of abuse and come out unscathed, there was not a doubt in my mind that Mike Banning was going to make more quick work of this head villain. Yeah, I think the way this fight should have gone down, if you take everything you just said in terms of Mike Banning's current state, is the way that Mike Banning wins this fight is by embracing how exhausted he is. And what I mean by that is you you see at some point, Kang does this like spin kick. It's a, just a beautiful spin kick. Like Rick Yoon obviously is a very talented uh, stunt performer, but there's something like very formal about this kick. Like it was the kind of kick you'd pull off like in a karate demo or something like that. So, you know, we can assume that like Kang has some combat training and he's now relying on that training when he's fighting Mike Banning. But Mike Banning at this moment, he should just be like a fucking animal right? Like this should be the culmination of all his rage. And maybe instead of like trying to like square up and like properly box him, he just fucking bites him or something like that. Just gets dirty. This final fight should have been the elevator scene in Drive where Mike Banning just like, you know, all that fucking violence in the beginning. Where is it now? Because <laughs> like Mike Banning, if he doesn't have rage issues, David, I don't know who does. The gates of hell should have opened in Mike Banning's soul and he should have beat King to putty. Why then that fucking happened? Why did we decide to pull our punches here at the end of this movie? It did not occur to me until you said it, but for as silly as... The Rock and Vin Diesel throwing themselves through walls in Fast Five felt, I absolutely would have marked out for that here. If you get Mike Banning hulking out, yeah, he's processing all of this rage. He's processing all of the trauma from losing the First Lady at, at the beginning of the movie, if you want to tie it all together. Like, this could have been him providing self-therapy through violence, and we don't get that. We get a very muted, a very, very plain final fight. Yeah, maybe after... Mike Banning stabs him in the head. That's when President Asher comes, pulls out the knife and just bip, 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 like makes his, his head into some, uh, some pasta or something like some hamburger meat. But David, finally, our two romantic leads, Asher and Banning, are reunited. There is seriously some smoldering chemistry between Asher and Banning. They both care for each other. They both check in, make sure they're okay. Banning throws Asher's arm over his shoulder. They're going to walk out of the White House together, arm in arm. This is, again... 
It is the most convincing relationship in the movie. Those phone calls with his wife, Leah, are cold and lifeless, but the the chemistry between Banning and Asher is palpable. But David, in the immortal words of Short Round, no time to fuck, guys, because the Cerebus <laughs> codes have been entered. These bombs are about to explode. But guess what? The the dude, the White House bunker team, they crack open the fail-safe code, right? Because they have the ultimate code to turn off Cerebus. Why wasn't it already open, ready to go? I don't know. <laughs> and then we have a very thrilling scene here where they read uh, basically like a GeoCities URL to uh, Mike Banning, and he's got to type it in like backslash. At some moment, he doesn't know. At some point, he doesn't know what the hashtag symbol is. And then Angela Bassett goes, shift three. And that's how he presses it. And he enters in the code. And you expect it as soon as he enters the code for the thing to go like, Cerebus, shut down. But instead it's like 10, 9, code gets entered. 8, 7, 6. It's like, wait, what the f- Why are we still fucking counting down? Three. Oh, oh you know what? Uh, uh, disarmed. Like, what, what the fuck was this fucking lag? God damn it. Because it was probably the producers watching this going, man, he's going to make quick work of this too. And then they were like scrambling, like, no, 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 we'll, we'll keep it running down. Like, again, more quick work between Mike Banning and his obstacles. The only thing slowing him down in this instance was they got the oldest guy in the room to read the instructions out to him. They get Robert Forrester and he's like, all right, G, all right, the next one's going to be H, all right, next one's going to be another G. And it's like, this is the most tense thing in the movie is Robert Forrester reading back instructions. Yeah. He's like, hotel? Wait, what's V, Victor? Upside down nine? The six, six. Um, Yeah, but then you see Banning and the president are walking out. And as they're walking over bodies, David, they're cracking jokes to each other. He's like, sorry about your house. And president's like, I think it's insured. (laughs) And then I guess they freeze frame. Like it's in a police squad or something. (laughs) Oh my goodness, what a terrible ending. But it's not over yet. Uh, for the most part, it is because I was expecting uh, some sort of diehard fakeout ending. I was expecting someone to appear from the ashes and, you know, try to get one last shot at them. But no, this movie really does end with them walking out. But there's a little bit more runtime left, David, because the movie does a quick jump forward to President Asher giving a speech about how this attack, if you really think about it, was maybe a good thing. Because, like, hear me out. Okay, because when freedom gets tested, right? As for murder Mike Banning, he's rewarded with his old job back. And Leah was able to get out of her shift early so they could both get to IHOP before the high school kids get there. And as for Olympus, well, it's back on top, David, because the bad guys are dead, we've learned nothing, and we never will. That'll be the end of this movie. That's how it's going to wrap up. I was expecting, like, facts to be at the end of the movie, like... Mike Banning served for eight more years. Or I was expecting like photos comparing the actors with the people they played. This is going to be a docudrama from beginning to end with no grounding in reality. But even though we know that London's about to fall and then whatever the fuck angel means. (laughs) For now, we bid adieu to our heroes because that is the end of Olympus's Fall. Okay, David, how many mark out moments did you have while watching this? How many moms? I had none. This movie started off heavy. It dug itself out a little bit. It got heavy again. It just made it very difficult for me to enjoy it in an outward way. So I I went goose egg on this one. How about you, Mac? I had one. I love a good action hero line, even if it's in a bad plot. David, is this someone's favorite movie? Probably the favorite movie of a lot of dads uh, who aren't very good dads. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, Gerard Butler, he has fans, right? That's undeniable. And so some of his fans may like this movie the best. And I can kind of hear people saying like, oh, what, what is it about Olympus Has Fallen? It's like, I feel like it's really the violence in it 
they really show the real impact. It's very grounded, you know. But the fact that the movie is so grim at first, the people who this is their favorite movie, I I sure don't want to meet them, right? It just sounds like a lot of go to therapy, y'all. Just that's that's tough. Okay, David, it's time for some punch ups. We're the ultimate script doctors, David. Everybody knows that, and we do scab. We fuck the writers. <laughs> the writers. <laughs> No, David, how would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? I've got a few. First of all, no more quick work for Mike Banning. If he's going to be your hero, give him some hardship. Give him some obstacles. Make us worry about the fate of Mike Banning. Make us wonder what's going to be the outcome. Is he going to save the day? This was this was a cakewalk. I had no doubt in my mind that he was going to save the day. I'd like some doubt. Thank you very much. Final note, this is going to be the biggest note of all. Lighten up. It's a goddamn action movie. I, the, you know, I, I initially, when I first watched this movie, I hated it. it. It just, it really left a bad taste in my mouth. The second time I watched it, I made peace with it. I know that it's a movie for people. It's just not for me. I like a little more silliness. I like a little more mirth and whimsy in my action. Let's let's lighten this up a little bit, please. I agree. Lighten it up, and also my punch up. Tighten it up. All right, this movie's got a lot of plot, and I don't think we need all of it. I think it definitely like shrink. A lot of these details down and just focused it up. Look, terrorists trying to take over the White House. You know, that's enough for me. I don't I don't need them cracking a magical nuclear code. My second punch up, right at the very end when uh, Agent Mike Banning is, you know, helping the limping president leave the White House, we cut to some news footage of the moment. Man, in that moment, how badass would it have been if the president turns to the camera and just flips it off? Or like when he's giving his final speech instead of being like the generic like America talking points like, you know, when freedom gets tested, that's when the free are really free. And I feel like now is the moment for us to come together and freedom some freedom. What if instead he's like, <laughs> I got a message for terrorists, unzips his pants, a giant horse cock comes flopping out on the podium. <laughs> he goes, choke on my fat hog. I don't even care if it's like, maybe it's not his dick. Maybe he likes put uh, like a summer sausage down there. So it's like, okay, <laughs> he, it's clearly not a human penis, but he's making a point. He's like, terrorists. Eat my cock and balls. This is what I have to say to you. I mean, seriously, that guy would throw out the first pitch at every Yankees game forever. Like, I feel like that would, <laughs> he would be, Amer sadly, America's most popular president. I'm good with that. I just don't want to see it. I'd rather just see the reaction shots of everybody in the press room and maybe Mike Banning wiping the corner of his mouth. But I don't need to see that horse cock. <laughs> okay, fine. Instead of a horse cock, he turns around, drops trow, and he's like, eat my ass. And then he's like, here, terrorists, I'll help you. And then, you know, whatever it is, French's mustard, uh, <laughs> some barbecue sauce. He just puts it down there and he's like, toss my fucking salad, terrorist. That's what I think about you. USA, USA. Or you know what it should be? It should definitely be dressing for a Greek salad, David. There you go. David, final punch up here. Some years ago, I had to like work on this project for like three weekends in a row. And whenever I was working on this project, I put on the TV and it seemed to line up to win like some Ashley Judd thriller was playing on the TV. And God damn it, David, are these movies not super fucking entertaining? I guess I don't, I didn't really think much about Ashley Judd at the time, but she is like the queen of the 90s thrillers. I'm talking about Double Jeopardy. I'm talking about High Crimes. I'm talking about Kiss the Girls. I'm talking about Twisted, okay? The fact that you have the queen of 90s thrillers and you just kill her off like that, you need to put some respect on the name of Ashley Judd. What do I mean? What I mean, David, is when Ashley Judd died, I didn't see the body, okay? If she doesn't come out as the that she faked her own death and she's the secret villain in, like, any of these sequels, fuck you, Hollywood. 
you needed to do it. You needed to have the twist of like, I faked my own death so I could blow up America because of how much I hate freedom and how you, you couldn't pick out a necklace for me, you shitty president husband. Especially that would be so on brand for Ashley Judd because she always played like the wronged woman who steals up and, and gets her vengeance. I would have loved to have seen her at the end of this movie, a bloody tank top and a gun. Just it's my presidency now. Like, hell yeah. It's kind of like Sean Connery in the, uh, the movie, the Avengers, not the superhero one where he suddenly went from playing a spy to a supervillain. I think we all remember that movie and how great it was, David. Best Avengers I've ever seen. Yeah. I think he at some point dressed like a giant cuddly uh, gummy bear or something. I don't remember. All right, David, please join me in the punch man video store. David, we splurged. We have three copies of Olympus Has Fallen. As you know, Punch Mountain Video Store is an all-action movie video store. Where would you stock this movie, David? What subsections of action would you put these copies on or in? I don't know. So this, my first copy is going to go on the Jerry Butler shelf. Welcome to Punch Mountain, Gerard. I got a feeling this won't be the last movie of yours that we do. Second copy is going to go in the franchises. Uh, there are three Has Fallen movies, so we'll probably end up stocking all three. With a fourth on the way. <laughs> oh really yes what falls now lord knows uh i think it's called actually it's called night has fallen so i think it's um i think it's his uh his uh eyesight he just he he can no longer drive at night gerard butler's asking rate has fallen so he can make a fourth one that'll be the second copy my third copy i was gonna put this in a section called america action but i feel like america has become too much of a pejorative and it's kind of become too much of a punchline i don't mean it like that so I'm going to call this CBS action because this is a perfect movie for our parents and grandparents who swear up and down they hate violent stuff. They think movies today are just too gory and too bloody, but they, they'll watch a CBS Saturday Night Show. They'll watch a CSI and they love it to death. So I think this is going to appeal to those parents and grandparents who secretly love some of the worst stuff you've ever seen. I wonder if back in the day, if an edited version of this had made its way into TNT and a teenage Mac Blake had seen it, I might have a different opinion about this movie. I don't think that affects where we stock it at all. All three of those sound good to me. <laughs> Maybe if there's a section called surprisingly a little too violent, I, I would stick that <laughs> movie on that show. Dave, we all know Olympus has fallen, but now the ultimate responsibility has fallen onto the mountain. It is time to reveal the place of Olympus has fallen on the definitive ranking of action movies, a.k.a. Punch Mountain. And as a reminder, uh, at the summit, currently the top six, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Raid 2, The Matrix, Jurassic Park, Hard Boiled, and Speed. And at the bottom of Punch Mountain, where Punch Mountain has fallen, David, it is number 37, Chappie. David, before we learn the official position uh, given unto us by Punch Mountain itself, where would you rank this movie? This will probably be the most, I guess, paradoxical choice and by that, I mean, I, I didn't like this movie very much. I, I struggled with a lot of it, as you could tell by this episode. But it is a very action-y movie. I think this movie is going to end up higher on the mountain than my tastes would have wanted it or my enjoyment of it would have wanted. But it is a memorable action movie. It has memorable sequences. It's action-y throughout. It's good combat. This will end up in a pretty decent spot on the mountain. I don't know if that's going to come across as a recommendation or not. What about you, Mac? We haven't really talked about Antoine Fuqua too much, but the dude is no slouch. Like, he knows how to direct some very tense scenes. But David, as action-packed as this movie is, it has a real enjoyability problem. Because that beginning is so violent and so grounded, it's hard to get into it. It, it just felt like a barrier for me. I spent more time being like, oh my God, than I am like, oh wow, that's neat. Because of that, 
I, you know, it's just it's hard for me to get behind this movie as much as maybe the quality of the action scenes, you know, would make you think that I would. David, look out. Those are rocks falling, not from Mount Olympus, but from Punch Mountain. And sure enough, the, the rocks are falling off the side of the mountain. The golden letters are revealing the position of Olympus has fallen. And it is currently number 28. That means 26 Mission Impossible 2, 27 Punisher Warzone, 28 Olympus has fallen, followed by 29 The Driver, and 30 The Dirty Dozen. I mean, that makes sense to me. It definitely should be ranked uh, higher than sort of semi-action movies, A Driver and Dirty Dozen. But I mean, there's a real fun barrier there that it just can't crack uh, Punisher Warzone or even Mission Impossible 2. I think the mountain did a good job on this one. I got to tell you, I thought I was going to be a lot more sour about where it was going to end up. But this this feels right. It, it is a more action-y movie than the movies it's above, The Driver, The Dirty Dozen, stuff like that. It feels right at home, adjacent to Punisher Warzone. But yeah, I think there is going to be this sort of Mendoza line that divides movies that, that are enjoyable and movies that might not be as much. Oh my goodness, David, do you hear that noise? Oh no, the service machine is activated. <laughs> no, David, that is not the code that blows... Who fucking cares? That is the <laughs> a horn, David, calling us to action. Because on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes. But we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the Clean Air Task Force. The CATF is a group of climate and energy experts who achieve impact through technology innovation, policy advocacy, and thought leadership. Fueled by facts rather than ideology, the CATF uses their expertise to leverage workable solutions to this global crisis. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the Clean Air Task Force. Also, for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, we'll add $1 to our donation. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the air. For more information on the Clean Air Task Force or to donate directly to them, visit catf.us. All right, folks, that's going to do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Folks, the end of episode 36 means we've put another dozen movies on the shelves, so next week it's time for another inventory episode. We'll be giving our final thoughts on episodes 25 through 36. We hope you'll join us, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.